1: He i pūrangi irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai kakemai mai and welcome to this hour Changing World podcast from RNZ with me, Alison Balance. Niwa freshwater ecologists are trying to solve one of the great mysteries of the natural world. Where do our longfin eels go to breed? Worldwide, there are 16 species of temperate eels that live in continental waters such as lakes, rivers and estuaries. Our endemic longfin eels are the largest and longest-lived of these. They all breed only once at the end of their life. They all spawn far out in the open ocean. And we are only just starting to find out where all of them go on their once-in-a-lifetime breeding migration. I'm off to the Waikato to join Paul Franklin and colleagues, including international expert Kim Aristrup. A local fisher has caught some big female longfin eels and it's time to tag them and send them on their way.
2: We've just come out to the Anted Eel Processing Company in Te Kofata, and we're about to start attaching our PSAT tags to our longfin eels.
1: Now, this is going to be amazing because you are trying to solve a mystery.
2: Yes, that's right. We've had a long-standing mystery over where our eels actually go to spawn. And this has been a challenge worldwide with all the freshwater eel species that a lot of people have wondered about for a very long time. For some of our species, we have a bit of an idea of where they go, but particularly for our New Zealand longfin eel, we're still need to find that final bit of information to help us nail down exactly where they go.
1: So people have tried to do this before, but quite a long time ago?
2: Yes, so the original work was done back in the early 2000s. One of my colleagues, Don Jellyman tried to do this, and he had some success with tracking some of the heels up towards the area of Tonga, and that's where the sort of general idea that ariel's go there for spawning comes from was from that early work but in those days the tags were about double the size that they are now and it was quite an experimental method at that stage so we had quite a few of the tags dropped off early and things like that so what we're hoping now is that with the smaller tag sizes and a bit more experience of how to attach the tags that will have a bit more success with getting a few more of these eels out to their spawning grounds and actually be able to track them the whole way there.
3: My name is uh, Kim Årstrød. I'm a professor at DTU Aqua in Denmark, and I work with migratory fish species.
1: So I gather you've done quite a lot of work putting tags on eels. I have
3: done tags on a lot of eels around the world, yes. So far we have tagged six different species, and this is going to be number seven.
1: So tell me about the tags that you're putting on.
3: The tags is a so-called pop-up satellite archival tag. And it essentially consists of some sensors that measures temperature, depth, and light, and stores them. And at a predetermined time, it releases itself from the eel, and it rises to the surface like a cork. And the antenna will then transmit the data to a satellite, and their data will then be relayed down to a ground station where we can get, get hold of them. How big are the tags? The tags is about 40 grams, but they're floating, so that doesn't really matter. They're about 12 centimeters long, and they have a diameter about two and a half centimeters.
1: How do you attach a tag to an eel which is long and slippery?
3: That is uh, certainly a challenge, and it has been for many years, and we started many years ago. And what we do now is that we attach them with three points where we just nip the skin, so it's like a piercing, and based on that, little piercings we actually have a string from those up to the tag and that's how it's essentially sitting like some sort of backpack. We want to make sure the tag stays on the eel but we also want to have the minimal impact on the eel while we do it.
1: So has this yielded good results for you with some of those other species you've been looking at?
3: Uh, it is still relatively new but there is a lot of things that we have learned because so far up to when we started using these tags on the eel we actually didn't, didn't know anything about what they do out in the ocean. And it is, of course, in biology, at least in animal biology, one of the remaining mysteries is what the eels actually do once they leave the coasts anywhere in the world and where they end up and then how they spawn. And we're still struggling to find out.
1: Tell me about the long
3: fund eels. The one we're working on here is the Anguilla diffenbaki. It's the largest temperate eel species, probably also one of the most interesting eel species because it has this long life. They can be up to 100 years old. And essentially, they start somewhere unknown as four millimeter small leaf-like larvae that drift along the ocean currents. At some point, they metamorphose into what we call glacials. So they actually look like an eel, but they're completely opaque. You can look through them. They have two black eyes, that's all you can see. They'll then run up the rivers and stay there for a number of years and grow up to these massive sizes, maybe up to 20 kilos, some of the last you have here. And then for this one, it then migrates down, out into the ocean and disappears and we have to follow it back to the spawning area. And specifically for this one you have here in Zealand. is an endemic species. So you only have it here in the whole world.
1: So what species do you have in Denmark?
3: We have the European eel. So in the Atlantic we have two temperate eel species, the European and the American eel, and they spawn in almost the same spawning area down in the Sargasso Sea.
1: So have you pinpointed where in the Sargasso Sea they're going to?
3: The three temperate eel species, the Japanese, the American and the European, are the best studies in the world. And we have an area where they're spawning. But that has been done through a different kind of research, through extensive sampling of these small larvae out in the ocean. It's quite a large area. We are talking about several hundred thousand square kilometres that's been delimited. But it was done back in the 1910, 1920s. It took about 25 years. To sample lavas across the Atlantic to find out where the smallest lava were that would then sort of logically lead to where that's where the spawning site is. But we don't have such data on a lot of the other species, including this one. So we're trying to just flip the bucket and try it the other way around and try and follow them out there. It is prohibitively expensive to send out ships if you want to do a similar stuff today.
1: It looks like you're getting close to getting your eels ready.
3: Yeah. We have one in the anaesthetic waiting for it to calm down so we can take it and then we'll, we'll borrow it for five minutes and we'll put it back in the water.
1: So I'm actually standing outside looking into a room where they're about to put the tags on the eels and there's lots of fresh water pouring through to keep the eels all aerated so it's really loud. So there's a team of them working on the eel, they've quickly weighed it, it weighed 4.9 kilograms, then they're popping it into a long, thin cradle and everyone's gathered around uh, and the process is about to start. Half an hour later and two eels have been tagged. They're much longer and thicker than my arm and are pure muscle. So what length and what weight are they coming in at?
2: So those first couple were just over 1.2 metres long and just under five kgs in weight. So we've got a couple a bit smaller than that and a couple a bit bigger than that as well.
1: How old will they be?
2: It's really difficult to know for certain, but these girls migrate in and live to quite a long age. The average time, they say, is around 40 years at migration, but that can range by, you know, 10 or 20 years.
1: Are the males migrating at the same time?
2: The males often migrate a bit earlier, and they certainly migrate at a smaller size as well. So the males often migrate uh, around 50 centimetres, something like that, Uh, whereas these big females hang around for a lot longer in fresh water, feeding up and getting much bigger.
1: So it's really only the females that are big enough to carry a tag?
2: Yes, yes, at this stage. The tags are gradually getting smaller, but still, these big females are far better position to take those tags than the smaller fish
1: The fisher who caught the eels has come by to see the tagging in action
2: Hi
4: my name's Bob I'm a commercial eel fisherman I've been fishing commercially since 1972
1: Now I I gather you found these gorgeous big girls
4: Uh, Well I captured them this
1: So where did they come from?
4: Um, Secret spot
1: Fair enough, so do you see many females that are that big?
4: Um, Well you see females that big all the time but we return them to the water of course. But to catch them in migration season is always a bit of a challenge. They only move when they want to move and conditions have to be right.
1: And what are the right conditions?
4: Plenty of rain. We're in a drought around here and we haven't had it this year. They're just waiting for the right conditions. They still haven't gone yet and they may not go for another month if we don't get the right conditions. But when they go, they'll all go at once.
1: How can you tell they're about to migrate?
4: Well, they develop certain characteristics, particularly around the eyes and the mouth and their color and um, quite easily to see really once you know what you're looking for.
1: So are you curious to know where they're going to go?
2: Yes, very curious.
4: I just know that they tend to go up somewhere near uh, Norfolk Island and New Caledonia, is it?
2: Yep, towards New Caledonia and Tonga is where sort of some of the original work showed they seem to be heading. So we'll find out if these girls go there as well or whether they keep on going even.
1: What are they doing on the way there? Do we have any idea?
2: We've got relatively limited data, but we can certainly see that they migrate up and down within the water column during the day, so they go down into the depths during the day and then they come up again closer to the surface at night.
1: And when you say down to the depths, how deep?
2: We've recorded them down to, I think it's a couple of hundred metres that they go down to.
1: But they're not feeding down there?
2: No, once they start their migration from the freshwater, they actually stop feeding and they don't feed for their entire journey out to the spawning ground, as far as we know.
1: What information are your tags actually collecting?
2: So the tags record three main things. One is the depth that the tag's at, one is the temperature, and another is it captures light. Now, we've found in the past that we often don't get much data on the light side of things because they tend to swim too deep in the water to actually get the daylight registered on the tags.
1: What does the light tell you?
2: Well, if you can capture the light information, it can help you to locate where the fish actually are based on the time of sort of sunrise and sunset. They can use that to locate long-tune latitude
1: So this might be a little problematic if they keep doing this deep daily diving.
2: Yes, so we're we're sort of relying on where the tag actually pops up because when it pops up to the surface after it releases from the eel, then it sends a signal back to a satellite to tell us exactly where it's come up to the surface. The other thing we have is that we've got the tag set to be released at different time intervals between five and eight months after the fish are released. And so if some sort of drop off a bit earlier in the journey and some a bit later on, it starts to give you a bit of an indication of where the pathway is that they're moving.
1: So we're at mid-ish May, so they might come up October, November, December?
2: Yes, that sort of time, hopefully. We'll be keeping our fingers crossed for a nice Christmas present, I think, getting all of the data in.
1: Paul says he's also looking forward to the first news about where shortfin eels spawn, we share this species with Australia and South America and Australian researchers have just tagged some shortfin eels in South Victoria. We'll wait to hear news of where they get to. And I'm curious to see how deep our longfin eels dive as they migrate. Previous research has shown that migrating temperate eels spend a lot of time during the day in deep cold water around five to 900 metres down. At night they come up into warmer, shallower water just one or two hundred metres deep. Researchers think there may be several reasons for this. Avoiding getting eaten is one. Studies with Northern Hemisphere eels have shown that predation is a huge risk, with up to three-quarters of tagged eels getting munched en route. The female eels are also juggling temperature and pressure, trying to time when their ovaries mature. That's because they almost certainly don't breed until the year after they migrate, which I have to say is a very long time to go without food. On average, temperate eels swim at about one kilometre an hour, which means they cover maybe 24 or so kilometres a day. Slow ones travel as little as 2 k's a day, while others sprint at more than 50 k's a day. European eels cross the entire Atlantic Ocean – At that average swimming speed, it'll take them seven months to cover 5,000 kilometres. And spare a thought for the Norwegian eels that swim up to 9,000 kilometres to reach the Sargasso Sea. Even if our Longfin eels aren't swimming quite that far, they're still swimming more than 2,500 kilometres. They leave here in May, and the first glass eels come back in August which is not enough time for mum to swim there, spawn, and have her tiny larvae drift back in the same year. All really interesting. Now let's go back to the eel tagging. The team have tagged nine females. Previous research has shown that migrating longfin eels spend a couple of days hanging out in the lower reaches of the Waikato River to adjust to the rising salinity before they head off. So the team has added some salt to the water in the eel's travelling tank to begin that process of acclimating to salty seawater. We arrive at the mouth of the Waikato just on dusk, and everyone gets ready, including getting a rather noisy drone airborne to film proceedings from above. So we've arrived in Port Waikato, you're all putting your waders on.
2: Yes, we're putting our waders on so we can probably sink in. Up to our necks in the mud, down the edge there, (laughs) as we release the fish.
1: So we're, what, about a kilometre or so from the 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 sea? Yes.
2: yes.
3: It looks like they can sort of slowly slide out into the current, the outgoing current, and swim into the ocean, and hopefully continue for a couple of hundred days until we hear from them again. Sun is going down now, so usually they are nocturnal, so they will dominantly move at night. So that means they got a full night to start off on. I think that's really good, actually.
1: How are your eels looking, Paul?
2: Looking OK at the moment.
1: OK. So your first one's gone?
2: So, yes, first one is gone. So we're just going to gradually take these out one by one.
1: They're swimming away strongly?
3: Yes, they are. They're in good spirit. <laughs>
2: So are we down to the final fish?
1: Here we go. They wanted out, didn't they? <laughs>
2: yep, they certainly did. So hopefully they're now off on their way and we have to wait a few months now to see what information we get back. But it's an exciting time to finally get to this point where we've released them.
3: Based on their behaviour when we released them, I think they're swimming. They're on the way out there, full speed. Let's hope so.
1: Thanks, Paul. That was Paul Franklin from Niwa, and we also heard Kim Aristrup from the Technical University of Denmark. And Paul reports that they are tagging and releasing Waikato eel number 10 this week. I'm Alison Balance, and this Hour Changing World podcast from RNZ, first aired on the 16th of May, 2019. To listen again or check out photos, just head to the webpage page, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. You can sign up for our free weekly email newsletter while you're there. We are a free podcast in all the usual places. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. You'll also find my other podcasts there too. There's a new episode of the Kākāpō Files, following the record-breaking Kākāpō breeding season. It's been a tough week for the kākāpō team. Following on from the death last week of two adult males, four chicks have also died. A number of birds are currently being treated for the fungal disease aspergillosis. There are now 73 living chicks. The chemistry podcast Elemental, celebrating 150 years of the periodic table of elements, is up to dysprosium and erbium. I know. Who even knew these are chemical elements? Not me. Anyway, you can find both these series on the podcast's page at rnz.co.nz and I'm posting all of them on the Our Changing World webpage as well. If you haven't already, check out RNZ's science podcast for kids, Girls' Great Science Adventures. Stay in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. Bye for now.